Hello and welcome to the second episode of Toward a More Just Future, a podcast from Rutgers School of Social Work. My name is Marla Blunt Carter, and I'm an assistant professor of professional practice at Rutgers School of Social Work. Today, I will be speaking with Sarah McBride, an activist and elected official who is a member of Delaware's General Assembly. Sarah is the first transgender state senator in the country, making her the highest ranking transgender official in United States history. For this and for many other reasons, Sarah is no doubt a change maker. Hi, Sarah, thank you for joining us today. Hello, it's so wonderful to be with you. Oh my goodness. So can you briefly share um, with the listeners your journey to get to where you are as a Delaware State Senator? Sure. Um, Well, my name's Sarah McBride. I am the brand new or relatively brand new at this point state senator for Delaware's first state Senate district, which includes parts of our biggest city, Wilmington, all the way up to the Pennsylvania state line and the community of Claymont, where Joe Biden uh, spent several uh, years uh, growing up. And I was born and raised in this district. My story, my journey really starts here in in this community. I was incredibly lucky. Um, I I was raised in a a loving family, a supportive family, um, a progressive family. Um, And I had a, a world of possibilities before me because of that luck and that privilege. But buried deep inside of me was a struggle with my gender identity, a struggle with who I am, and a struggle with how I fit into this world. Yeah. And from a really early age, I was, I was dealing with that. I was thinking about that and, and that t- the tension between who I was and what everyone thought I was, between who I wanted to be and what seemed possible. And so I kept my gender identity buried deep inside and I really found um, an escape in reading and in particular in reading history. But more than an escape, I found hope in reading those history books because I saw as much as I was struggling with how I fit into this world, I saw in those history books that the story of every chapter was the story of advocates, activists, citizens and and a small group of courageous elected officials who would band together to deepen our sense of equality and justice for more and more people who for too often had been pushed to the margins and into the shadows. And so I found hope in those history books. And I saw in reading those stories that politics was the place where you could make the most amount of change for the most number of people in the most number of ways possible. And I thought perhaps if I could make a change in, in my community, if I could build a world where more people could live fully and freely, whether there's someone like me or someone else, mm-hmm. that perhaps that would be a fulfilling life, even right. if I couldn't live an authentic life. But as I grew up, I saw that the only way to live a fulfilling life is to live at your core and authentic life. And I got involved in politics and I got involved in advocacy and community service. And I saw that as fulfilling as those things were professionally, they didn't heal that pain in my own life. And so I, I, I came out, started doing advocacy here. And in that advocacy, I saw our state at its best. 
but I also saw how we fall short for far too many people. And I wanted to serve this state in a way that would help us to live up to our values for more and more Delawareans, to ensure mm-hmm. that we left less and less people behind and to eventually build a state that is truly a state of neighbors in both values, but in action as well. Mm-hmm. And so when the opportunity came up to, to run for office, having worked in advocacy, having seen so much change here in Delaware, and then eventually as the national press secretary at the human rights campaign, the nation's largest LGBTQ civil rights organization, I saw what I saw in those history books, that change is possible. That politics remains a place where you can do big things and make a real difference in people's lives. And so I decided to run and ran for about a year and a half. And fortunately, the voters decided to entrust me with the responsibility of representing them. Resoundingly, you had like 90% of the vote. Um, But but you, you just explained so much about your journey, but let's go a little deeper because you didn't just come out. It wasn't as easy as just, oh, and then I just came out and then I came back to Delaware. That was a difficult process for you. You were the student body president at American University, if I'm not uh, yeah, mistaken. And here it is, in, uh, you know, an op-ed in the newspaper and, and you're telling everyone, welcome Sarah McBride. How was that? How did you find the courage to finally um, reveal to the world the individual that you have always been, um, knowing that you had a reputation of being a political operative and dealing with the fears that, that maybe you would be closing a door because of people's inability to accept who you really were. How did you do that? Explain that journey of, of finding the confidence Um, and the courage to be Sarah McBride? Well, it was 21 years in the making. Um, I think one of the challenges we have in in conversations around gender identity that differ from conversations around sexual orientation is it's difficult for people who aren't trans to understand what it feels like to be trans and in the closet. And for me, Mm -hmm. the closest thing that I could compare that, that experience to was a constant feeling of homesickness. And that homesickness, like I, like I said, it, it plagued me all of my life. It plagued me every single waking hour of every single day. You know, they always say that it's hard to be what you can't see. And growing up, there weren't examples that I could see of out trans people who were happy, healthy, doing what they love, finding love, and in a community they, they, they necessarily love. Um, the examples were, were, were not present in the media. The examples weren't present in the news. The examples were present in my own community physically here in Wilmington. And so the idea that I could be out and, and not just be involved in politics in some way, but be out and, and find fulfillment and happiness and, and love, it seemed so impossible that it was almost incomprehensible. Right. But at a certain point, I f- I found that as painful as it may be to come out, it would pale in comparison to the pain of remaining in the closet. Absolutely. And in many ways, I'll be honest, before I came out, I had to give up. I had to give up on a future. 
mm-hmm. I had to grieve right. and go through it. In many ways, my process to coming out was in many ways a, a process of grief. Yeah, and acceptance. Right? And, 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 and right, and the final stage of that grief is acceptance. I had to grieve a future I hoped for that I feared would not be possible. And only when I could get through that stage, those stages of grief and come to a place of acceptance of potentially a future of mm-hmm. discrimination and, 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 and a lack of opportunity and, you know, a, a void of love, you know, despite all the privileges I still have, fearing that that would be the reality. Once I could come to a, a moment of, of acceptance, a place of acceptance for, of that grief for what I hoped in my, would come in my life, I was then able to accept myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and frankly, I mean, what a tragic thing. Yes. That anyone has to go through that up, process. <laughs> give up on, 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 on their dreams and their hopes for whatever reason, um, in order to live authentically. Um, but I did. And, and so when I came out, I was scared, but in many ways I was expecting the worst. And that's and every, not what you, what, and every you single said. step, every single person I came out to every single reaction I received while the fears were understandable, they proved unfounded. Mm-hmm. And I, I came out to my family, close friends. And then in, on the final day of my term as student body president at American, I came out to my campus and my community back here in Delaware as trans. But the responses for me, as, as powerful and positive as they were, also only highlighted how lucky I was. Right. Because those experiences remained the norm for far too many trans people, for far too many people across our country, across our world of varying identities and backgrounds. So and so did that, I let me was ask you, that involved. Well, sir, I, I was going to say, so did that give you um, even more of a passion to be a stronger trans advocate and activist um, because of your experience of coming out and, and being one that was positive but knowing the history of so many others that that do not have a similar experience is is that one of the things that 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 uh, led to you working on the uh, Equality Delaware program uh, or initiative, the laws that that were just um, not fair? It is. Um... The, the recognition of how lucky I was in, in coming out, it led me to, to work on the ultimately successful effort to pass a non-discrimination law here in Delaware, protecting trans people from discrimination. It ultimately led me to work uh, in national advocacy, helping, to, um, helping to, to, to draft and formulate the Equality Act, which is our, our movement's top legislative federal priority. Exactly. Um, Could you explain that to the listeners? What sure. exactly is the Equality Act? So the Equality Act is a comprehensive LGBTQ equal rights bill that would finally add LGBTQ people clearly, undeniably, and explicitly to our federal civil rights laws in employment, in housing, in public spaces, in education, and healthcare, basically making it clear that LGBTQ people cannot be discriminated against throughout daily life. Because right now, we have a recent Supreme Court decision that does interpret existing laws to protect us 
but that's subject to being overturned by future Supreme Courts. Right. And 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 it and it's and it and it remains open to anti-LGBTQ politicians and judges seeking to to deny that. And so this would send a very clear message, make it undeniably permanently clear that LGBTQ people are protected from discrimination, no matter where they live and no matter what area of life they're they're participating in. And so I got involved in that advocacy and then ultimately decided to run. Because of a different experience that taught that showed me the exact same lesson. And that experience was serving as a caregiver to my husband, Andy, during his battle with cancer, which ultimately took his life. And in both of those experiences, there were obviously a lot of lessons I learned, but one of the top lessons I took away from those experiences were as hard as they were for as much life as I have jam-packed in the last 10 years of my own life. For as difficult as they were, they were still relatively easy compared to the experiences of so many other people. And I barely made it through both of those experiences. And I know that without any layer, any one of the layers of support, of privilege, of luck, of, of, of opportunity that I've been afforded, if any one of those single layers had been removed, I don't know that I would have been able to make it through. And so many people don't have those same support, those same opportunities, those same privileges. And so I'm motivated to make sure that, you know, everyone's going to face hardship in their life. It's the, the moral question before us is what do we do to support them through that hardship? We can't eliminate loss. We can't eliminate tragedy. We can't eliminate hardship. What we can do is we can provide better support. We can make life a little bit easier for people. And my goal is to try to make life just a little bit easier so that people can get through that hardship like I was able to get through that hardship. And so now here you are in a position as an elected official to create policy, to shape policy, uh, to do that. And that's really exciting. And so as the first transgender, um, the highest transgender elected official in the country, okay, that is huge. and. Is that a lot of pressure? Is that, is that do you feel um, a sense of responsibility that you didn't feel <laughs> prior to being in this position now? The highest in the land, right? Mm-hmm. So everyone is looking to you and you are 30 years old? Yeah. That's a lot of pressure, you know? Um, and that is certainly why you are definitely a change maker. But what does it mean to you um, being the first? It's a lot of responsibility. That's a lot of pressure. It is. It is. And, and you know, I, I certainly feel that it's, it, it doesn't matter if I'm the first, if I'm also the last. Right. And I do view my job, part of my job, as not just leaving a Sarah-sized hole in the wall, <laughs> but to, to take this moment to try to bring down all of the, the walls and barriers that stand in people's way um, to fully and, and, and equally participating in our society, including in our democracy. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I, I though also know that as, much of I, as much as I have a responsibility to the LGBTQ community, the only way I can fulfill any of the responsibilities I have in whatever symbolic or, 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 
or sort of trailblazing role I have, the only way to fulfill those responsibilities is do the best job I can in the job that I'm in for the constituents of this district. And so on a day-to-day -day basis, that's really what I'm thinking about. That's what I'm focused on. It's not, you know, how do I, I'm not thinking about the title or, 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 or that, that, that the fact that I'm a first, I'm thinking about doing the best job for all of my constituents, including my trans constituents. And knowing that if I do that, I will do justice for the broader communities that I also have a responsibility to. Yeah, um, you're focused on the work. You're exactly. focused on the work. And, and there's a lot of work to be done. And so here we go. You are now a part of the most diverse and definitely the youngest uh, group of legislators ever to be in Dover. Um, how's that working out for you? What committees are you on? Are you working with individuals that are like-minded or is it difficult? What is the work like in Dover? Well, it's an, one, it's an incredible um, privilege. I, I, I really, I have a, perhaps a, a romantic view of, of, of public office in that I, I believe that every elected position is a position of public trust. Mm. And in that role, you have a moral responsibility to do as much good as you can for however long the voters will have you in there. Mm -hmm. It's not any other position. It's not any other role. It is a unique privilege and a unique responsibility. And if you don't spend every single day for as many hours as you can trying to fulfill that responsibility to the people who elected you, to future generations, recognizing that, that you, 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 all of us are part of a, a, a story in the history books. If you don't do everything you can to fulfill, to write that story and to fulfill those obligations, then I think you should look for other work. And, and- <clears throat> Yes, I agree. And so I, I have a, a really sort of deep, I'm not, a, I, I'm under no illusions as to the flaws of our government and to the flaws of politics and electoral policymaking and, and all of that. But I, I have a deep reverence for these positions. Um, and so I bring that, that, that with me. And, and, and I know so many of my colleagues share that, that reverence. And I think the, the, the historic diversity we have, the youth we have, that coupled with the returning members really makes us uniquely positioned to meet the times and the scale of the challenges we face. Because at the end of the day, diversity in government isn't a luxury. It's a necessity to a healthy and long-lasting democracy. Because you can't craft effective solutions to the challenges that we face if you don't have the full diversity of that community at the table. That's true in technology and business and in politics. And so, you know, I am op really optimistic um, and I'm loving working with my colleagues. There are certainly disagreements that colleagues have, especially when we're talking about colleagues across the aisle. But I think one of the things that I have always tried to um, perform is a recognition and, 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 and live by, I should say, um, but, but, but perform in my duties in, in my work is a recognition that you can be bold mm -hmm. and bring people together all at the same time. Mm -hmm. 
absolutely. So the 2020 election had a very high youth turnout. I met you when you were 16, 17 years old, uh, involved in politics. Um, but what do you attribute the high turnout um, in the 2020 election to? Um, what, what happened? How did we get everybody excited, especially the youth? How did that happen? I, I personally think um, in large part having candidates like you. <laughs> but um, what are your thoughts on that? It's a great question. I think there are a number of things that that contributed to that. One, it was, to your point, the historic diversity in candidates we saw. People want to vote for people that 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 see them, that that hear them, that understand their experience and their pain and their hopes. I think two, ironically enough, the pandemic forced states to make voting more accessible. Mm -hmm. And we see that when, when voting becomes more accessible, more people participate. Absolutely. Um, so I think those are two of, two of the contributing points. Three, of course, Donald Trump's shadow loomed large. And the harm and the frustration and the fear people had around, around his election in 2016 and his presidency, I do think was a motivating factor for, for a lot of people. So how do we keep the, the, the engagement high? How do we um, secure um, just that level of civic involvement for future elections? You know, I, I think this is always, this is a perennial challenge we have, right? It, 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 we, we see time and time again that people turn out oftentimes out of anger and in opposition but then once their candidates get elected, turnout decreases. And I think that that's for two reasons. One, there are people who end up saying, okay, we've elected the right people, our job is done. Right. And you know, there, there, it's summed up in that sign, if Hillary had won, I'd be at brunch right now, right? <laughs> that you saw at some of these protests. And, and, and that is, you know, an unfortunate perspective that, that, that some people do have. And I think what we have to, we have to do is we have to recognize one, that the Donald Trump and Donald Trump like elected officials are a symptom of a larger problem. And that problem did not disappear in November. It didn't disappear in January. It didn't disappear on January 20th. There is still work to do. And the only way to prevent people like Donald Trump from getting elected again. The only way to, to, to address the underlying problems, whether those problems are, 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 are racism, sexism, misogyny, whether those problems are, 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 are sort of the institutions and the health of the institutions we have, whether it's trust, whatever the, those contributing factors are, and I think it's a combination, a, a varying combination of all of those things, we have to stay involved to address those issues. Otherwise, we will see people like Donald Trump get elected to the presidency again. The second is though something that I think is on us as elected officials, which is that when we get elected, and if we don't fulfill that sacred trust, if we don't meet the promises that we've made with action, people will say it's not worth it. 
People will say the system has let me down once again, and it is beyond repair. It is beyond my contributions. And I am going to now self-select out of advocacy, activism, and our politics. And so we have a responsibility as elected officials to deliver in order to keep people engaged, in order to demonstrate that there's a reason for advocacy. Right. And so the voter wants to see results. They want to see um, that their choice for representation is acting um, in a way that is beneficial to them. So speaking of someone that is working um, very hard to fulfill the voters' requests for good representation, I want to talk a little bit about your connection to the President of the United States. Um, Being from Delaware and knowing the family well and uh, having him write the foreword to your book that was released in 2018, correct. Um, Let's go back to 2016 and your speech at the Democratic National Convention. Um, I know that President Biden referenced that as well as your relationship to his um, son, Beau Biden, in his foreword in your book. What role has the Biden family played in Sarah McBride's success? And how important was it um, to have him write the foreword to your book? It was an incredible honor. I think back to you know my my twelve year old thirteen year old self. If I had told me at a young age that Joe Biden, I mean, and this is when he was still a U.S. senator. If I had told me that Joe Biden, U.S. Senator Joe Biden, would write the foreword to my book, I wouldn't have believed it. Um, but I think what was so powerful about that was it was essentially the longest trans-specific public statement. Mm-hmm. ever made by a national elected official. And, and now to have the person who wrote that serve as the president of the United States, I mean, beyond what that means to me personally, I see every single day people talking about in the trans community, how, how powerful it is to know that the president of the United States wrote the foreword to a trans woman's book about his personal relationship with her just how incredibly both comforting it is to know that someone in that position sees us in that kind of way. I mean, literally just sees us, Yes. but also um, to to know that commitment and, and to, to, to see that he doesn't just see us, but recognizes the importance of our, of our lives and our cause. I see that every single day. You know, the Bidens have been an incredibly important part of my own life. Um, as you mentioned, I worked for Bo Biden, um, President Biden's late son, uh, during his campaigns for attorney general in 2006 when he was first elected and then on staff in 2010 when he was reelected. And Bo was the real deal. Yeah. Bo was, you know, Bo was 
Bo was as decent and kind and, and humble behind closed doors as he was out in public. And I mean, it is, it is noteworthy when an elected official, period, is that real? Yes. It is particularly notable when an elected official who was brought up in the spotlight that Bo was brought up in, you know, in, in, in a family that, that, you know, everyone in the state knew them, right? Mm-hmm. For him to, to be so real and kind and compassionate and down to earth, it's really a testament to, to who he is. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also friends with Ashley. She's, she's the same way. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a just inherent goodness in, in, in members of that family. Um, and and I, I always, whenever I hear Vice President Harris talk about President Biden and how she first sort of saw President Biden, got to know President Biden through the eyes of Bo, that's very much mirrors my own experience. Um, and a lot of times, the, you know, the mythology behind our national figures is just that, a mythology. It's, it's not real. But the story of Joe and Bo is, is real, right? It is so authentic. It is that the love between them is a love between a father and a son that I don't know that I've ever seen at that sort of, that depth and that profound level of connection. Yes. Um, it's a and story. Well, I was going to say authentic is, is a great word to describe your book and how, you know, how honest and real and, and beautiful, almost poetic, uh, how you write and tell your story and share um, the most intimate parts of your life. Um, what inspired you to write and to, to be so vulnerable? What inspired you to, to make this, this wonderful book that, that really shows um, authentic, authentic leadership? Well, I, I think for me, I've always felt that if I'm going to tell a story, I should tell an authentic story. Um, and and that includes moments of vulnerability. I, I think it's our vulnerability that shows our humanity. Yes. That elicits people's empathy. And, and we shouldn't require people to bear all in order to be treated with dignity. That's, a, that's an impossible standard. But in recognizing that our vulnerability is, is in many ways beautiful and powerful, that it's in some cases, in, 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 not in some cases, in many ways, our superpower um, I think, you know, for me, it's guided my advocacy, it's guided my work. Um, and, and I think th- there were a couple of reasons why I wrote the book. One, I wanted it to be a, a, a primer for folks mm-hmm. about some of the issues and about trans rights as a, as a cause. But in writing it, you know, it was after the 2016 election, I was pretty dispirited. My hope was that it would also do what it did for me for for the reader which is that it would help restore a little bit of hope that it would remind people that change remains possible and that it's oftentimes in our biggest challenges that we take our largest steps forward that's that's wonderful and it kind of leads me to um one of my my second to the last question <laughs> um do you feel hopeful about the progress that we've made in the fight for equality and social justice as a whole. Do you feel hopeful? I do. You know, I'm, 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 I think the challenge 
that we have for those of us who 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 fight for progress is to never be pacified by our progress, but to never lose track of how far we've come. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I think there's a I, I think there's a a disturbing trend in in our fight to it comes from a good place in our effort to see everyone's pain, in our effort to articulate very clearly all of the very real problems that we have as a society and challenges that we face and prejudices that remain and exist. I think though there's a disturbing trend to ignore, to scoff at, and to mock the very real progress that we have actually made. Exactly. And I, and, 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 and I frankly think it's inherently unprogressive to do that. And, and, I'll, and I'll say that, and, and I believe that's true for two reasons. One is I think it's progressive to honor the work of our uh, uh, of the advocates and activists who've come before us. And too often what our contemporary dialogue suggests is that those advocates work, their sacrifice, in many cases, the, the their, their giving of their lives in pursuit of justice didn't result in anything, that it was all in vain. And I think we do a disservice to them and their efforts and their legacy by minimizing the outcome and impact of their work. That's one reason. The second reason why I think it's it's inherently progressive to recognize the progress we've made is because hope is a necessary ingredient for continued progress. If you lose hope, if you look at history and see no progress in that story, you will lose the hope that progress remains possible and therefore the energy necessary to continue the fight. And so I think it is a self-defeating proposition to pretend like we haven't gotten anywhere. Now it's never enough. We have to keep going. We have to always be clear-eyed about the ongoing challenges, but we can never forget the fact that we have demonstrated that change is possible, that we have made that change and therefore we can do it again. Wow, Sarah, I I wanted to ask another question, but I'd rather end on that note because you you do honor those that have come before you and you inspire those that work alongside you and motivate us to work even harder because of your example. You are a change maker and it is an honor to speak with you, to know you, to work with you. And thank you so much for talking with us today. You're the best. The honor is all mine. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're very, very welcome. Today, State Senator Sarah McBride shared her thoughts and experience on leading with authenticity, resolve, and hope. Her activism and work fighting for social justice speaks to the values of social workers. And that's why she is in the spotlight. 